as I just said, today we come to the end. Yeah, I would never have thought that Acts 10 would take, you know, 10 sermons and, and almost three months. But, um, but Acts has... Has touched on, Acts 10 has touched on nearly every major facet of the church, which astonishes me for 44 verses. We've seen God sending His Son, Jesus Christ, for all nations, Jew and Gentile. That's, that's what is normally preached in Acts 10. But then what, what knowledge is necessary to become a Christian, which is virtually none, but acceptance by God, a call by God, and a true belief in Jesus Christ. We've seen that the preaching of the gospel is essential to both belief and salvation, and so much more. As I said, we've been three months in this chapter, but here in the last four verses is one more major Christian concept, that of baptism. Last time in Acts 10, we read, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And here we are, witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There is the preaching of the gospel by the apostle to, uh, to open receptive hearts. The result of that preaching is found in the text for today, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, and this is an effective sermon when this can happen without reflection, but while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, on face value, it looks like biblical, scriptural teaching on baptism 
should be straightforward. I mean, this is pretty straightforward stuff here. But never underestimate man's ability to muddle things up through human thinking, men's traditions, and a determination to make everything dependent on the work of one's own hands. Okay? What should be a simple and evident uh, teaching through the, uh, through the clear teaching of scriptures has instead been a dividing point for 2,000 years on, of Christianity. And that is baptism. You know, what is it? What does it symbolize? To whom is it administered? When is it administered? And what does it accomplish? It will not surprise you to find out that there are several schools of thought on what baptism accomplishes. The um, word baptism, you probably all know, comes from the Greek word baptisma, which means washing, dipping, or immersing something into water. In terms of Christian baptism, its definition is a right of washing with water as a sign of purification and consecration. However, some Christian denominations put much more emphasis on baptism than that. I've relied on uh, Tim Challies. He runs a Christian blog. He's a Reformed Baptist pastor. Uh, Everybody says... Whenever it says uh, Tim Challies, they say uh, .com. Uh, the, most, the most trusted name in Christian... No, that's the Babylon B. But I'm relying a lot on uh, Tim Challies on this because he put it very well in one of his uh, writings. He points out the difference between these viewpoints, these various viewpoints. And there's, there's at least four, but there's four big ones, Okay. Roman Catholics see baptism as the means of salvation. Okay? That's how you're saved. And if you think about it, you know, the last rites, which we don't administer, we know that when you're saved, you're always saved. Catholics don't believe that. They believe that you can lose your salvation up to the time of death, which is why the last thing that happens to you in this life if you're a Catholic and have a a priest around or a chaplain is they give you last rites to absolve you of your sins. Your baptism is supposed to get you salvation but because they don't believe that you're once saved, always saved, last rites now come into play. Uh, The catechism of the Catholic Church states holy baptism and this is From their catechism. Okay, so let's not make any mistake here. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. The gateway to life in the spirit. And the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the word. This sacrament is also called the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, for it signifies and actually brings about the birth 
of water and the Spirit without which no one can enter the kingdom of God. Okay? I'm not going to reiterate that. I tried to read it really clearly, but baptism is it. Without baptism, you cannot get to the kingdom of God. I will once again point out if if, uh, baptisms actually bring about the birth of water and the Spirit without which no one can enter the kingdom of God, then someone should tell Jesus that. Okay? Because I will take you once again to the thief on the cross who was not baptized, who had done nothing good in his life except believe in Jesus. And Jesus tells the unbaptized thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I know that there are those who argue that Jesus could do anything he wants. (laughs) And granted, I'll give you that. Okay? Uh, And that the thief on the cross is an exception. Some that say that the thief on the cross is an exception. I would argue instead that this precedent placed where it is as the last thing Jesus does on the earth as the culmination of man's salvation and redemption and uh, made right before God is not the exception but the rule okay I say that it is the rule that God intended us to see here the Roman Catholics make baptism a work of man's hands the means of salvation. They are wrong. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith, but by grace alone. Now, a second view is held by Lutherans, and I will say that remember that the Lutherans are very close to the Catholic tree. They do almost what they do here with transubstantiation, meaning the Roman Catholics believe that the elements of the Last Supper actually turn into Jesus' body and blood inside you when you take them. Catholics don't, I mean, Lutherans don't say that, but it's a little wiggle around this thing because they are so close to the Catholic tradition. Tim Challies points out that they hold to a variation of baptismal regeneration, though they claim it does not contradict grace alone through faith, okay? It's really close, but not the same thing, and it doesn't, it doesn't contradict grace alone. A Lutheran scholar, Robert Kolb, writes, Baptism fulfills what God promised to his Old Testament people. It gives salvation, that is, new life in Christ, to, to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Baptism is God's action and action of his word. And in summary, he says, baptism saves. It does not do so as mere water or as the cause of salvation, which lies in Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. Baptism saves as one instrument God has used from the creation of the universe on, namely his word. Still, the sticking point for me here is saying that baptism saves. I know that they're trying to keep grace in there, but I'm not positive they're successful. If 
baptism saves, as Richard Cold says here, then once again it is a work of man's hands, uh, no matter how many flowery words of justification is used. A third major belief in Christian denominations, including Presbyterians, and right now we have been dealing with people who believe in infant baptism. Over 50% of the Christian church believes in infant baptism. As much as we disagree with it, we're in the minority. Okay. So, a third belief in Christian denominations, including Presbyterians and other Reformed denominations, is that baptism is your entrance into the covenantal people. Okay? We are now the covenantal people, the Christians. This is your entrance, is as uh, through baptism. Because it is viewed as an entrance to the covenant people, it is found to be perfectly acceptable to baptize children, also often known as christening. Okay, yeah. you've heard of baby christenings at Twin Peaks Church. We had baby dedications. I did not see it as a baptism, but I have come to see that including baby dedications makes one think. One of the problems with a baby baptism, other than the fact that it's not scriptural, is that it might lead you to believe that they're saved without instruction, further instruction. Okay? And really, if you get down into the Presbyterian, the Reformed tradition, not even they believe that. They are doing the act without expecting the result. And so, therefore, we do not do baby dedications, as sweet and as I think it is. Anyway, Richard Pratt Jr. puts it this way. Reformed theology views baptism as a mysterious encounter with God that takes place through a rite involving physical elements and special ceremony. Through this encounter, God graciously distributes blessings to those who participate by faith and also judgment to those who participate without faith. In the Reformed view, baptism is efficacious Divine grace is really conferred by the Holy Ghost through baptism. Even so, this bestowal is mysterious because it is ordered entirely by the freely determined eternal counsel of God. These Reformed churches, and this is not a quote anymore, these Reformed churches equate New Testament baptism to Old Testament circumcision. And we've talked about that before. That as circumcision was to the Old Covenant in the nation of the Jews, baptism is to the New Covenant. They believe that the New Covenant is made of families, and so they baptize infants. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a very clear thinker, in other words, Generally, it says, the children of believers receive the same promise as their parents and are therefore to be baptized. Now, we're Baptists, obviously. Baptists are called Baptists because they believe in believers' baptism. And we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more. And, you know, the reason... I really truly believe, and they won't tell you this, the reason that this 
tradition of men to baptize infants grew up is people lost so many babies previously. No parent wants to think that their child who died in infancy, they'll never see again, is, is not going to uh, be with them in paradise one day. I understand that fully. I also trust God to judge honestly, to judge, not to judge honestly, to judge justly. Whatever he decides with a baby who dies in infancy, I as the clay, I'm not going to say to the potter, this is not fair. To put a name to it that is unbiblical, however, is not the best idea in the world. Once again, doing this, saying that babies, the children of believers, receive the same promise as their parents, um, is, is putting man's own interpretation on biblical things. As I always try to do in these circumstances... Let's go to scripture to see what is said about baptism. And a a really good place to start would be with Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, 19. We know this verse well. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We all know this as the Great Commission. I don't think there's one of us who don't know it as that. Uh, These are the last words recorded as spoken by Jesus in both the Gospel Matthew and Mark. Um, Mark ends with a little bit more in the Great Commission than Matthew does. But in Matthew, these these are the last words recorded. Notice what Jesus both says and doesn't say here. First of all, he says, go and make disciples. Okay? He doesn't say, um, go and get decisions for Christ at a revival. Okay? He does not say that. He does not say, have people make a decision for Christ. He doesn't say, to baptize casual believers. The people who show up in a church and are all filled with um, good feelings, I would call them, than anything else, and want to be baptized. He doesn't say to baptize them. He doesn't say to baptize infants here. He doesn't say to baptize the dead by proxy as the Mormons do. Jesus said to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Them. Disciples. Are those words important? The last words spoken by Jesus Christ on earth? Do you think they're important? It's sort of like when I say that the thief on the cross is is telling a very important truth. Well, so are Jesus' last words on earth, telling you something very, very important. Or should we just disregard his clear instruction and lean on instead man's interpretation, man's understanding, man's wants, or man's desires, as in infant baptism? What did Jesus say? Did he misspeak? 
Do you think that this was a mistake, a misspeaking by Jesus? What is the purpose of baptism? One purpose, Colossians 2, 11 through 12 says, is to identify the believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in Colossians, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. It was a spiritual procedure, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to a new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. This is purely spiritual symbolism. Paul says we identify in baptism with Christ's death. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he goes on in Romans 6, 3, uh, 3 through 4. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. In baptism, Paul says, we also identify in Jesus' resurrection. So first we identify with his death, then we identify with his resurrection. Romans 6, 4 through 5 going on. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Going on with baptism, how is it to be administered? One of the interesting things I saw was, I'm going to give you a form here, but anybody may administer baptism to another believer. Okay? It is not, there is not a requirement. Remembering, of course, that outside the apostles who walked and talked with Jesus... They then set up teachers, but there was no apostolic succession. There was no special formula for a lot of these things. And anybody, even today, can baptize another person. The didache, um, if you know what the didache is, the didache is also known as the teaching of the twelve apostles to the nations. It's a very early church form. Because we're talking late first century, so 50 years after the uh, foundation of the Christian church, to early second century. They're not positive. These are rules, and they're not in any kind of an order, just at, on how to run a church and how to run a service. And so the didache, which by the way, fell away, it wasn't rediscovered until 1833 by some Eastern Orthodox monk, but anyway, on baptism, the didache says, and I love this, it says, the following is the proper way to baptize. Baptize under the influence of running water. Now, the version I originally read a long time ago said living water, and I love that, because Jesus says, you know, I will give you living water. But anyway, the first thing is the preferable 
baptized under the influence of running water. However, however, we're talking about a desert area. If you don't have access to running water, you can baptize in still water instead. Uh, you can see where the running water and still water came from, or the living water and still water. The water should be cold, but if you do not have access to cold water, mild water will suffice. Even if you don't have either, you can simply pour water on your head three times while praising God. Okay? St. Patrick, who is not Catholic, by the way, who is a Baptist, by the way, baptized many in, in Ireland. And I would have thought Ireland was a place where you could find living water uh, or still water. But apparently not in the towns where uh, St. Patrick was uh, preaching. And he baptized people in wells. Okay, <laughs> uh, Good dunking. Okay, Just, just an aside that I, I find amusing. As a matter of note, you all know that we baptize by full immersion. Immersion, right? Do you know what sprinkling uh, is called? I didn't know this until this study today. Aspersion. Have you ever cast aspersions on somebody? Sprinkling is aspersion, just to let you know. I think immersion must be better than aspersion. One last thing about baptism before we look at Acts 10, 44 through 48 finally, is that a new believer in Christ should want to be, and here, this is my editorializing, should want to be baptized immediately. Okay? If your heart is so alive with the love of God, after you've been preached to, that you believe in Christ, you should want to identify immediately. You remember our old friend, uh, the Ethiopian official, the eunuch. Philip the Evangelist comes upon him, reading the book of Isaiah as he's traveling in a cart. And Philip says, do you know what you are reading? And he says, how can I without a guide? And so Philip sits down beside him, climbs up in the cart and explains who the book of Isaiah is about. And the Ethiopian eunuch believes, and he says, look, there is water. Is there any reason I should not be baptized? And I mean it was now. He had to be baptized now. That is how the reaction to saving faith really should be experienced. I've got to do this now. So what does Acts 10 say about baptism? Now to get into our study. I do this a lot. I seem to get into our study at the very end of the sermon. Verse 44 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Peter preached the gospel to open hearts. These people had gathered on their own to hear they did not know what. They gathered because Cornelius said, hey, you've got to come in. Somebody's coming. You need to come. They came. Peter preached to open hearts. And the Gentiles in Cornelius' house believed, and all who believed received the Holy Spirit before 
Peter had finished speaking. Verse 45 says, And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit was given to the new believing Gentiles upon belief. Okay, the Spirit was given upon belief in this account. And how do we know? Verse 46 says, For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. To make sure that the Hebrew Christians understood what had just happened, God bestowed the Holy Spirit gift of Pentecost to the assembled Gentiles. And seeing this, Peter says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So what do we have? Very, very clearly we have belief of people who can understand, meaning adults we have the infilling of the Holy Spirit upon belief, then we have baptism. Can it be any clearer than that? Okay? Is that not the entire point of this passage? If you can find me another point of this passage, please let me know. But it is belief, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and then baptism afterwards. Tim Challey sums this up this way. As a Reformed Baptist, I am convinced baptism is a symbol of Christ's saving work for the one being baptized. Uh, Nettles, another commentator, provides this helpful definition. Baptism is the immersion in water of a believer in Jesus Christ performed once as the initiation of such a believer into a community of believers the church. He goes on to say, the strongest support for this view is a plain reading of the narrative passages of Scripture. Every single account of baptism in Scripture, every single account in Scripture, is applied to someone who has heard the message of the gospel and professed faith in Christ before being baptized. There is not an exception. The only ones who receive baptism are those who hear the gospel and believe. We can point to no person who, when he or she received baptism, was not fully instructed in the gospel material concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because baptism follows regeneration in faith, it is a symbol of what Christ has already done in the life of the believer. The sign of baptism, it appears from all the evidence that the New Testament affords us, is designed by God as a sign of the reality of union with Christ by faith experienced in the life of the one who has believed in Christ alone for salvation. In Christ alone for salvation. Anyone, and this is me, this is not a quote anymore, Anyone who says anything different. Uh, Catholics with salvation by baptism. Lutherans with their interpretation. Reformed with infant baptism. And we do identify with the Reformed churches. But uh, 
not the infant baptism part, but reformed with infant baptism as a replacement for circumcision, or baptism by proxy, like the Mormon church does it. They are substituting man's interpretation for God's clear teaching in his word. And that's all they're doing. It is man's interpretation. I shouldn't, I shouldn't end that way. You know, Groucho Marx in one of his movies says, who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes, okay? Well, here's the thing. Who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe God's teaching in Scripture? Very clearly, very clearly pointed out here. Or are we going to listen to man's lying words? Because those are our two choices. I'm going to go with God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you're very clear in your teaching, in your word. If we will read your word as it is truly written and truly meant, if we look at the clear instruction that you have given us, it would keep us from a lot of trouble within the church and within our own lives. Lord, we, we will follow your teaching on this, on what baptism signifies, on what it means, who receives it, and also what it does not mean. Because you have shown us instances in very specific passages that salvation does not come by baptism, Entrance into paradise does not come by baptism, but it comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.